Monica Snyder was a woman on a mission. Resolute and 28 weeks pregnant, she entered an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C., but not for the reason you may think. Today, she shares her story and how she, a non-religious pro-life advocate, stands up for life. Buckle up, this episode is quite the ride. Monica Snyder, welcome to the Edify Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to start uh, with what I think is one of the more dramatic things that you have done in service to the pro-life movement. And it was a kind of undercover experiment that you conducted. You went to an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C., where the abortion provider specializes in post-viability abortions. And you were 28 weeks pregnant at the time. Can you tell us your story, why you decided to do it, what it was like when you got there, um, and what you experienced? Yes. Yeah, so I I was at a different pro-life event just a couple of weeks prior when someone with live action asked me, oh, how far along are you? And I told them. And the long and short of it is they explained to me this situation and asked if I would be willing to go undercover at a later abortion clinic in D.C., And to be clear, we hadn't even necessarily decided which one. At the time that we were talking about this, there were three at least. And initially, to be frank, I was not going to do it. Uh, It sounded intimidating and not only just because it's, you know, undercover work seems kind of confrontational in a way. Most of the work I do, almost all the work I do is online from the comfort of my office or a coffee shop. It's it's very different than what I normally do. At the time, right after they asked me, I was in an Uber with my brother, who is also a pro-life atheist. And we were talking about it. And I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it. And he said, why not? And I said, well, uh, I don't know. It just seems, it seems intimidating. He's like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I was thinking about it and I thought, well, the worst thing realistically that could happen is they realize that I am recording and they kick me out and it's embarrassing, which honestly is not that bad. Right. <laughs> I could live with, with that. Your scheme of things. You know? Yep. What, 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 so what? I've, I've done plenty of things that people have been mad at me before, you know, in this job all the time. And so I thought more about it and I realized I was in a unique position. You know, you have to find people that are willing to do this. And and I realized after all this was over, I didn't I didn't anticipate this. A lot of people don't realize you have to actually be pregnant to do this. You can't just right, strap exactly. on a belly or something. They do an ultrasound. They they, you know. So it's not easy to find someone who is in that who is pregnant, especially that far along pregnant who's willing and I thought, you know, I'm in a unique position. Another important background to this is secular pro-life. We've done a lot of work on trying to talk to the general public about the nature of later abortion. A lot of work. I, I developed a presentation in 2018 that I've given many times since. It's called Deconstructing Three Pro-Choice Myths. And one of the myths is that later abortion is always or almost always for a medical emergency. This is an extremely persistent myth. And I understand mm-hmm. why. Because the alternative is very horrifying. People don't want to believe it. And because compared to earlier abortion, later abortion is relatively rare. There's not a lot of research on it, all these things. So Secular Pro-Life has done a lot of work. I personally have done a lot of work talking to people about the nature of later abortion and finding enormous resistance to people believing that anybody would abort a viable fetus absent a medical emergency. 
it's mm-hmm. been very frustrating. So there was a part mm-hmm. of me that felt like this is an extension of that work, just trying to establish what's actually happening here. All that to say, I decided I would do it. And, and so to be clear, though, you were 28 weeks pregnant with a uh, your daughter, correct? Ruby. Yes. And Ruby was completely healthy. There were no fetal yes. anomalies. There's nothing wrong with Ruby at all. And nothing I, wrong with your health. No, there was no health conditions at all. And and to be clear, nobody ever asked. Nobody nobody cares. So I I went home. I called several clinics in DC. I said at the time that I called them, I think I was, you know, 26 weeks in six days or 27 weeks or something, something like that. And I said, um, I said, you know, I'm I'm this far along first day of my last menstrual period was whatever it was. I don't remember now. And I would like to make an appointment. And one of the clinics said that's too far along for us. They, they went up to, I think 27 weeks. And I was at 27 weeks. Mm-hmm. One of the clinics said they could get me in, in a couple of weeks, at which point I would be 31 weeks, but I was not going to be in DC at that time. And I told, them, I was like, I, I, I won't be in DC that long. And they said, well, we don't have any appointments earlier than that. Okay. And then the, the Washington surgery clinic, they said, yeah, we can get you in next week. And they, and they confirmed on the phone. They said, so you will be, I think it was 28 weeks, one day or something like that. I said, yeah. Okay. "Okay." And, and they didn't, they didn't ask me why. Um, They let me know that I would need, they let me know roughly over the phone, you know, it will be, it could be a day or two days of dilation. Uh, on the third day, you have to have a ride because you will have taken medications where, you know, we're not going to put you in a ride share. You can't drive. So you, you have to have a ride on the third day. They said, um, make sure you're wearing comfortable, loose clothing and it will be $11,400. And I said, I'll have to look into that and get back to you. And they said, okay, no problem. Or maybe I said, I'll make the appointment the day of, you know what? I'd have to go look at my notes, but okay. either way, they, the, the person I, the woman I spoke to was completely cordial, professional, cheerful. And we made the appointment. So, okay. So I go to DC and, um, and I go to the clinic and I, did you go under a pseudonym or did you go no, with yourself? Just myself. You have to show your ID. Oh, and again, it's not, it's not illegal. Like you made an appointment, you can go. Theoretically, right. if I had some kind of psychotic break, I could have just done the abortion. I mean, right. You know, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to go to them and change my mind and leave. I'm sure I'm right. Not. Of course not. Yeah. And so, so, okay. So I thought this is the naivety on my part. I thought, you know, this will be a little bit weird. I can just get through it. I, I really, really hate, I hate lying. And I, I was afraid that I would be bad at it. And um, I also thought, here's what I thought. I thought I would go and I thought I would be very angry. I thought I'd be angry about the existence of this clinic, angry about what they are doing and I thought I would have a hard time hiding my anger and that it would be suspicious. That's what I thought would happen. I thought it would be very difficult for me to pretend to be either neutral or sad or whatever. And it would be obvious and they would they would maybe notice. Maybe. Um, it turned out that was not the case at all. I got there. The ride share I took to get there was a very friendly woman, and she, of course, has no way of knowing this and will never know, but she was really putting me at ease because we were just chatting about other things. And then I get there, and there were several things I didn't expect. The first thing is the, the, there were two nurses. One of them was probably my mother's age, and the other one was probably a little bit younger than I am. And I will say the older one, I really liked her. She was mm-hmm. super nice. She was very maternal. She seemed sincere to me. I believe 
based, this is speculation, I can't read her mind, but I believe that she believes that she is doing deeply important work to help women who couldn't get help anywhere else. She believes she's saving them from who knows what terrible situation and that, and that she, I believe she is there out of compassion. That's what I believe. I believe she's there because she wants to help them. I mean, I know she also gets paid to do it. I understand, but you know, I get paid to do my job and I deeply care about my job. So Mm -hmm. the other nurse that seemed more like this was a job. It felt like a waitress at a restaurant and she's kind of like, are you going to order what's going on? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> but it was, but there was no sinister kind of thing. They, they seemed like regular people, you know? And so the first thing I didn't expect was how much I would like the older nurse. And she really made me, she had a calming presence. And I, I was, the other thing I didn't expect is how upset I got. And it was not anger. It was heartbreak because the other mm. thing I didn't expect I didn't think about this at all. This is just lack of experience is there are other women there in the waiting room and They're for real, for real. And I'm not going to pretend that all of them seemed horribly distraught. Some of them seemed okay. Some of them didn't. Some of them were visibly showing, you know, the, the clinic doesn't only do post viability abortions. They do abortions at a range of, of gestational ages. So some of them weren't showing, but I did not have any idea how it was going to feel to sit next to these women who have not yet done this and could theoretically still not do this and just not do anything, do nothing. So they, they do up to 30 something weeks there, but I believe they say they do. I believe their website when I, at that time, I don't know what it says now, but at the time it said 27 plus weeks is right. what it says. Yeah. So whatever that means. I was <laughs> yes, 28. So. Yeah, plus plus being the thing that's undefined. And, right. You know, the interesting thing, I know you've you've written about this, but it's the abortion provider who uh, gets to call the age of gestation. Sure. But so, I mean, they have no incentive to change it. I mean, it's legal. Right. DC has no gestational limits. You know? Well, correct. So. Yes. But they, but in, you know, they are the ones, and I think this is where, in states across the country where, you know, there's an alleged uh, limit. Say they say it's 24 weeks it's the abortion provider who makes that call so yeah and there will inevitably be gray area like let's just assume for the sake of the discussion that everybody involved is meticulously honest okay there still is always going to be some gray area around ultrasounds i mean countless parents have seen this where they go to get their ultrasound and they say you know based on this ultrasound i wonder if your due date is actually da 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 there's always there's always a little bit of genuine wiggle room yeah and, and some women you, don't chart their cycles so they yeah. you know they're and guessing at their menstrual period if the abortion and- provider if it's a gray area and it's a judgment call the abortion provider is one making the judgment call say your limit is is you know whatever it is 20 weeks and this could be anywhere between you know 19 and a half and 20 and a half it's the abortion provider makes a judgment call right so yeah but at, at this clinic i don't think it even matters because they they're not legally beholden to limit it anyway. Got it. So, so the biggest thing I didn't anticipate, the thing that I think had the biggest effect on me was how I would feel about the fact that the other women were there. And Mm -hmm. to this day, I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it more times. I am not sure. I'm not, I am not sure that recording was the morally right thing to do as Mm -hmm. opposed to trying to help them. Mm-hmm. I think some of them wanted to be there. I think some of them, if I had said, hey, let me get you help, they would have been like, leave me alone. You know, I think some of them wanted to be there. I'm not going to pretend they all were waiting for a white night. But 
I think some of them did not want to be there. Mm -hmm. And I did nothing. Having worked with post-abortive women for 20 plus years, I can count on one hand the number of women I worked with who did not have some element of coercion present in their abortion decision. Yeah, there was a woman there who... um, So the way it works for listeners who don't know is when it's very late in pregnancy, you usually have a day and sometimes two days where you're just dilating the cervix. That's why it Mm -hmm. takes multiple days to do it. And and then on the final day, either your second or your third day is when they actually do what they sometimes call the extraction. Did they offer to do the injection, the fetal heart injection? They don't do an injection at the surgery clinic. Okay. So this would be live dismemberment. Um, I think they cut the cord. They transect okay. the cord or they, they, they reassured me because I, I was asking different various questions um, right. that my daughter would already have passed away before they do any extraction process. They okay. were very specific about that. And uh, they also reassured me that she would feel no pain, but I couldn't even ask the question without crying. Yes. It's interesting because rationally, I know that Ruby is fine. I am safe. She is safe. I'm going to walk out of here. Nothing is going to happen to her. But right. first of all, it is a surreal thing to be in a building and with people where if I wanted to go a different direction, they they would kill her and yeah, it would be no legal. Problem. That's right. the first thing. That's weird. And the second thing is Ruby will be fine and I will be fine. But these other women and their babies will not. Yes. And I just didn't anticipate that before I went. Sure. I've never sidewalk counseled. I've certainly never um, done any of like the rescue stuff that's so controversial. Right. But this experience gave me enormous empathy for the people who feel called to do those things. I mm-hmm. recognize the controversies. I recognize the risks. I recognize the pros and cons. I do. I do. But just speaking for the individual person who feels convicted to do those things, sitting in that waiting room, you know, now you're not talking about statistics, 900,000 a year or whatever. This woman right here with her baby right here is happening right now. It's a complete front of you. Right. You know, right. right, right. So that was really hard. And because of it, (laughs) um, I didn't have to act at all. I was so distraught the whole time I was there. And I, I was like a little bit crying on and off at different points, thinking about them. Also, as a mother, even though I know Ruby is safe, asking questions about, you know, would she feel pain? And just even contemplating it is is upsetting. And yeah. so I was tearful on, I wasn't like sobbing, but I was like, you know, tearful on and off throughout the thing. The, the older nurse was very calming and reassuring and sweet. She was sweet. She was mm-hmm. like, you know, it's okay. We are here for you. You can talk to us about what you want to talk about. Uh, she never asked any direct questions. I believe that some abortion providers and some pro-choice advocates, they feel that asking questions is prying and stigmatizing and pressuring. They think that it is kinder to not bother you when you've already thought a lot about this and this is already a really hard decision and they're and they're just, you know, they're just trying to help you with the situation. I think some people don't ask because they want you to do the abortion because they're going to make $11,400. I'm not saying that's right. not a real thing, but I think some people don't ask because they think that it's disrespectful. But either way, whatever their motivations, this is really important to understand, okay? From the time I called the clinic through the entire experience, at no point did anyone ask me at all about any health conditions with Ruby. They didn't ask me about any of my own health history except as related to getting an abortion, like have you had past surgeries, that kind of thing. 
You know, they didn't ask anything like what's going on with this particular pregnancy that makes this necessary because they know and I know that they don't need to. That's not part of the law. And and I don't have to have that reason. And so none, none of the paperwork I signed, nothing we talked about. There was no pretense that this needed to be for some kind of medical emergency. They know that it right. doesn't. And right. I already knew that because we've, we've done a lot of research on this. We've talked about this a lot, but it was different to experience it firsthand. So let, let's let's walk walk back to the payment part of it because that's mm-hmm. an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, would your insurance have covered any of this? Does insurance typically cover it? And no, I I believe you went with cash. And there, was I went there with a cash, reason which was unnerving? That's a lot of money to carry around. Yeah, but, um, I've never carried that much. Let's money talk in my life. about that. The whole charge and payment and does insurance cover some of these so, things? I don't know. To my knowledge, insurance rarely would cover such a procedure. Um, there might be some insurance policies, private insurance policies, where if it's for a medical emergency, they do, but I don't know. So my understanding is that people go, and, and to be clear, they're not all this expensive. You could go back even four weeks and be way less. You know, it gets, mm-hmm. it, it goes up, you know, exponentially as, as you're getting right, further along. Right. You know? Because it takes so long. It it's takes so long. There's greater liability to the provider. It's, it's just, you know, there's more risk. Yeah. So they're not all this expensive. I I, right. I I believe that earlier in the second trimester, it'd be more on the order of $500 or, or $1,000 or something. And so, um, so yeah, this is, this is a very large amount because I was so far along. I was already at 28 weeks entering the third trimester. And my understanding- So six is, weeks past viability. I mean, this is what, you yeah. know, yeah. actually almost in these days, almost seven weeks past viability, depending- you know, what kind of hospital you're giving there are birth plenty, in. So. There are plenty of children that have been born at 28 weeks with, with no issues. Oh, the survival rate's extraordinarily high for, yeah. for 28 weeks. Yeah. So another thing I want to point out, because several years ago, I never heard this, but I'm hearing it more and more now, is I'm, I'm hearing pro-choice. In a post-Dobbs world, I think what's happened is Dobbs happened and all of a sudden we're all getting into the nitty gritty of what exactly, how exactly do you define abortion? How do you define it legally? How do you define it medically? How do you define it ethically? There's all these different definitions. And increasingly one of the pro-choice talking points is that abortion is just termination of pregnancy, preterm termination of pregnancy. It may result in the death of an embryo or fetus or it may not, but death is not an integral part of the of the definition. I'm increasingly seeing people say pro-lifers are the ones freaking themselves out, hurting their own feelings, thinking that death is the point, but it's just termination of pregnancy. And in this framing, increasingly, I'm seeing pro-choice people, moderate pro-choice people who take that very literally. And so they assume that if if the child is viable, then abortion is just preterm delivery of live birth and they take them to a NICU. That's what they think. And, and in mm-hmm. fairness to them, that would be a much more humane and sane approach. Um, that is not at all true. That's mm-hmm. not at all true. It's very important for people to understand. Oh, why isn't it true? Explain that. Because abortion involves the expected death of the embryo or fetus. And I say expected because there are cases where you'll have a very late abortion for a fatal anomaly and the parents are, are conceptualizing this as like a euthanasia thing. And they they have a live birth knowing the child will only live for a certain amount of time after that. And they hold right. them and say goodbye and have a whole memorial process. So there right. are cases where... There is a live birth after an abortion, but it's going to be when there is a fatal anomaly and death is expected shortly thereafter. Right. If it is a post-viable abortion, if it's after viability, there's two things you have to keep hold in your mind. If it's after viability and there's no other health problems with the fetus, 
they will induce demise first. Mm -hmm. They will induce demise first because the point of abortion is not only termination of pregnancy. The point of abortion is that you do not have a live child you are responsible for at the end of it. That is the point. Right. So, so the other thing I wanted to emphasize is that I'm at 28 weeks. You could, if you believed abortion was only termination of pregnancy, there's a theoretical version of this where you go to this clinic, you say, I want an abortion. And then they clarify, well, do you want the kind of abortion where we just terminate the pregnancy and then take the baby to a NICU? Or do you want the kind of abortion where we don't? Nobody clarifies that. In the abortion clinic, all of these euphemisms and layers that you're seeing on line and arguments about, you know, assuming a frictionless surface in a utopian situation, all of this nonsense in the clinic, nobody is pretending that that's what you mean. There was no point from the time I called the clinic through this whole thing where they ever said, hey, do you want the kind of termination of pregnancy where your baby lives? Nobody would ever ask you that. No. There's Yeah, there's zero nuance at the abortion clinic. It would be a stupid question. I bet they have literally never asked a single woman who has contacted them, do you want the baby to live? Everybody knows what you mean. Be right. serious. Of course. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And again, there's at the abortion clinic, there's no nuance. And um, and the kind of termination of pregnancy that we're discussing, as, as you mentioned, involves on that first visit, the insertion of something called laminaria into the woman's cervix, which is like a seaweed substance. And that, you know, artificially expands your cervix. And then you've got to you've got to do that for two days. Depending so, on how far along you are. Some people can right, do it for exactly. one day. Right, right. It, it, because of the size of the baby, obviously, you need to have a certain amount of width to work with to um, extract the fetal remains or the fetal body parts. So it is um, really a, a, a great, you know, there's, we hear so much, right, about women wanting to preserve their future fertility. And there's so much risk to future fertility with this sort of artificial expansion of the of the cervix with the laminaria are there not i don't know maybe the other thing we the other thing we hear about is women doing this because their life is threatened but if your life is threatened you're not going to opt for a two to three day procedure as opposed to going to a hospital and inducing labor now or having an emergency c-section now especially with a viable child if it is a wanted pregnancy and your life is threatened you're going to approach it in a way that maximizes the chances of the child surviving Right. Nobody is going to a later or an all trimester abortion clinic because of a wanted pregnancy. Maybe for fatal anomaly. Maybe for fatal anomaly because they conceptualize that as euthanasia. They see that as a mercy. That's a separate. Mm -hmm. That's a separate added layer. But in terms of if there's nothing wrong with a child and there's something wrong with a woman's health, they're going to a hospital, not an abortion clinic. Another important point I would like to bring up. I've had many, many conversations about this, and I have seen pro-choice medical professionals, could be a nurse, could be a doctor, whoever, who work in hospitals. And they'll say, I've worked in this hospital for X number of years, and the only time we have ever seen abortions this late is for a medical emergency or fatal anomaly. And I say, I believe you, because the elective procedures don't go to hospitals. Well, you right, and because you're not going to see an elective later abortion because those aren't done in hospitals. Right. Because and because largely the, your insurance won't cover it. Medicaid won't cover it. Yeah. And why would the hospital do it? There's no medical there's no medical indication for it and it's a huge liability. So when you tell me I work in a hospital, I never see this, I say, "Yeah, man. I know." <laughs> and and here's the interesting thing and these are some of the the, the cases that we're seeing seeing come out of places like Ohio and out of Texas. It was a case in Ohio where a woman's 
she, and she was an employee of the state of Ohio. Her baby was diagnosed with something called body stock anomaly, which was very serious, life limiting. Um, so many horrifying uh, diagnoses. Yeah, illness, illness for the baby, um, but it would, did not pose a threat to the life of the mother. And she, the, the ads were very deceptive. She had to leave the state to get an abortion, not because she couldn't have it done. In fact, her OB made an appointment for her, but because her insurance wouldn't cover it. Mm. So she, um, so she was, they were going to have to pay for it all out of pocket because her insurance covered abortion, but in the, in the cases of a, an actual threat to the life of the right. mother. Right. So she went to another state where she went to a clinic, like the one you're describing. And she said it was a lot cheaper. I think she paid two or $3,000 and they ended the baby's life there. And, um, but it was an insurance matter and there are similar cases coming out of Texas now and life of the mother exceptions exist. And you've been writing, you know, I think rather extensively on this yes. and they exist in every state in the country. But what people are not being honest about is the fact that they have to go to these clinics because they don't go to hospitals because the, A, the hospital won't do it there because your life's not at risk and B, your insurance won't cover it. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a, there's a ton of, if not straight misinformation, then also just lack of information. And it's, it's kind of overwhelming. Well, one of the things, yeah, you wrote in your article um, that that caught my attention. You said there is a wide chasm between the rhetoric of pro-choice activists who argue women choose abortion with full knowledge and autonomy and what I experienced that day. Yes. So one of the things I've had pro-choice people tell me is that abortion clinics, whether it's Planned Parenthood or an independent clinic, whatever, that they they always give fully informed consent and they screen women for issues like coercion or mental health or any, any, any of those factors that we know can increase the odds of a woman having psychological issues after the abortion. So in the debate about mental health, psychological reactions and abortion, this is my understanding. You can correct me if you have a different understanding. The pro-choice side, they won't go so far as to say nobody ever suffers after an abortion, but they'll say that the research shows that the people who have the most mental health struggles after abortion, they were already having significant mental health struggles before abortion. Let's assume that that's all there is to it. If that's true, then you should be screening women for the very mental health struggles that research shows correlate with increased struggle after the abortion. You can say it's not the abortion's fault. It's the the prior circumstances that are being exacerbated. That's fine. But then screen them for it and you can still give them the abortion. You just screen them for it and say, just so you know, you know, we did this screening, you hit here. And we know research shows that people who hit here, you know, have these, these results are more likely to have this reaction. Do what you want with that information. You could screen them and you could tell them. But instead they say, oh, if they had more struggles after, it's because of these reasons which we're not going to screen for or talk about. It's not super compelling. But either way, when I I had three of my pregnancies in California and every prenatal appointment I went to, they, as a standard procedure, not personal to me, they did this with all of the pregnant women, they would screen us for depression and they would check in with us if we were safe at home. My husband was not allowed to go back with me to any appointment until I went back by myself. And they talked with me every single time, despite the fact that these were wanted pregnancies and I'm in a happy marriage and I've already told them three or four times prior that I'm fine. It's not personal. It's just a standard procedure because intimate partner violence is a major thing mm-hmm. with pregnant women. Uh, Charlie Camosi talks about how the number one cause of death for pregnant women is homicide. And so it makes sense when you're interacting with a healthcare provider as a touch point for them just check on you, just check on you. Oh, and they watch you very, you know, after I had one of my uh, daughters, I had a little bit of postpartum depression in the days following. So 
you know, I, I was still in the hospital because I had a C-section and the nurse came in and found me crying and they did not let my husband back in that room until like two or three people yeah. had sat down and talked to me. And that's me. smart. Like, I think that makes sense. I was actually kind of impressed with my prenatal appointments in California. At some point, like I, I answer the questions, I'm not depressed, I'm good, but you know, how effective is this? Do you find women in these situations? What do you, what would you even do if the guy in the waiting room was some abuser and he's 20 feet away and you're talking like, what's the next step? I, I was curious, but I was impressed that they had a system in place. I'm sure it doesn't fix all your problems, but at least they're trying to do something. Mm-hmm. So that was in California. I'm not saying all states do that, but I thought it made a lot of sense. In California, they gave me a formal checklist to fill out, but I think in some places they at least talk to you and like, how are you feeling? How's this? How's that? Like they just, it's a standard question to check. When I went to this clinic, at 28 weeks pregnant, you're 28 week pregnant. As far as the staff knows, there's no medical problem for me or the baby. And I'm weeping on and off throughout. I was there, I think two or three hours. I don't know. Um, and at no point does anyone say, are you sure you want to do this? What's going on with you? You know, my sister, she used to be uh, a nurse in an operating room. And when I talked about this, she was shocked because she'll be helping with something vastly less controversial, like a knee surgery. And if they ever have a patient before they begin the operation who seems anxious, who seems upset, they halt everything and stop and check. Are you consenting to this? Do you want to do this for Mm. for a knee surgery? And I'm talking about this situation. Nobody checks. Nobody asks. And again, I think most generous interpretation is they feel like it's not their business. I've already gone through all this difficult decision-making. I'm not saying I'm I'm not necessarily fully convinced by the pro-life movement's narrative that people who work at abortion clinics are basically all just greedy psychopaths. I don't think that's right. true. But although I believe if they ask, and again, my own experience has been coercion is often present. Um, I would say close to always that it creates a liability for them legally. That's if a good they, point. Maybe that is so they don't want to ask because they don't want to know because it could be a problem for them. That's later. interesting. I I had not thought about that. That's a good point. Maybe maybe that's part of it as well. Maybe I'm being too nice. But in any, in any case, uh, nobody asked. And I, I think that moderate pro-choice people, if they've thought about this at all, about later abortion at all, they just assume that basic decency, of course, you know, abortion is healthcare. These are healthcare providers. Of course, they're going to make sure you have fully informed consent and make sure that you're not being coerced and make sure it's all up and up. Um, There are probably some clinics that do that. There's lots of clinics, you know, this clinic did not. And this clinic is important in particular because the vast majority of abortion clinics only go up to something like 12 weeks or a little bit after, right. you know, right. but I would expect the further along you are in pregnancy, the greater the odds that something is going really, really wrong. And, mm-hmm. and so if you're one of the few clinics in the entire country that provides abortions past 24 weeks, in this case, past 27 weeks, you are in a unique position. I would say you have more responsibility, not less, but whatever they didn't, they did not ask. So Okay. So so let's talk about the abortion provider himself. Were you ever able to meet Dr. Santangelo? Uh, no. And you weren't. And ta- tell our listeners a little bit about the insistence that you take a particular medication before you would be able to engage. So I go, I go, I sign in, I pay, they draw my blood, they do the ultrasound, and then I wait. And then they take me back and they explain, you know, I've signed various paperwork about the medications I'm going to be taking about, you know, that kind of informed consent was there. I'm not saying, I'm not saying there was no informed consent. They have paperwork about the procedure, the risks and the medications, that kind of thing, the physical aspect of it. Right. And so I go back with the younger nurse and 
she explains that they're going to give me several medications, which include an antibiotic. I think it was acetaminophen or some kind of mild pain thing and Xanax and as an anti-anxiety thing. And I had not yet, you know, keep in mind, I'm here to record the conversations. That's the reason I'm here, <laughs> lest we forget. And I had, I had talked somewhat extensively to the nurses, but I had not yet met the actual doctor, uh, Santangelo. And so, you know, I have no, I have zero intention of taking any medications of any type at all. Right. And, and so she's telling me I need to take these medications and I'll wait a while for them to kick in. And then I'll see the doctor for the beginning of the dilation. I, I am not going to take any medications. And so I said, you know, I, I had, I had asked her a couple different questions and at least one or two of them, she had been, she had said, it would be better if you asked the doctor about that. So just going back to informed consent, I had signed informed consent papers, but I'm, I'm a woman who's clearly upset and who's asking questions that you tell me to talk to the doctor about. So I want to go see the doctor then. Right. And I said, you know, I still have questions. I'd still like to talk to him first. Can I talk to him first and then take the medications? And she says, well, not really, because the medications need to already be in your system before he can begin the dilation. And essentially they were saying, because, you know, the waiting room was kind of full, as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. And essentially they were saying, you know, we, ha we have a schedule to keep that's going to mess up the schedule because then we have to wait even longer for you. Uh, we need you to already be ready to go. By the time you see him, you need to be in the room, you know, in the, in, on the chair or whatever, like ready for him to start the dilation. And so the medications need to already be in your system. And I said, well, will taking Xanax affect my clarity of thinking? And she mm -hmm. said, no, it shouldn't. And I remember thinking, that's not true at all. What are you talking about? You know, mm. Xanax is an anti-anxiety med. And, and we looked it up later when I wrote about the experience, but common side effects include memory issues and cognitive issues and sleepiness and drowsiness, it, it, like frequent, the frequent side effects right. include those things right. in addition to anti-anxiety. Uh, my other sister is um, a doctor and she, to be clear, my sisters at the time did not know I was doing this. This was all very like, we weren't talking about it with almost anybody. Right. But I, I messaged my sister who's a doctor afterward. I didn't tell her about any of what had happened. I just said, hey, you know, I had someone tell me that their nurse told them that Xanax does not affect your clarity of thinking. And she wrote back in all caps, what, LOL? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Like, she That's the whole purpose, right? <laughs> Why would a nurse say that ever? And I was like, yeah, who knows? But anyway, right. anyway. So she That's said it shouldn't affect your clarity of thinking. And then I said, and they watch you take the medications. They make sure you take the medications. And I'm not going to do that. So I said, you know, I, I think I would like to step out and call my husband. I'm, I, know, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this. And she said, okay, I understand. You know, this, this video has gone out through live action and we've talked about it. And I've read some of the comments. And there are people who will say, you know, they tried to force Xanax down my throat. No, they didn't. They didn't try to force Xanax down my throat. They said, you can't see the doctor unless you have the Xanax in your system. That's what they said. Right. And I said, I right. don't want to. And they said, okay. You know, so how did you extricate yourself from? The I situation? said I want to go call my husband. Uh, I'm uncomfortable. I want to go call my husband, and they said sure thing. And so I left. I went outside. I did, in fact, try to call my husband, who did not pick up the phone. <laughs> by the way, um, I called someone else instead, briefly, and then I talked to my my person who was my touch point on all of this, and I said, "This is what they're saying," and they said, "Do not take any medication. Yeah, you you got to go. Yeah. You got to go. Yeah. You know." And so I went back in. Still tearful, genuinely mm -hmm. tearful. Like I, the other comments I've seen is, wow, she's a really good actress. Guys, I'm not acting. Right, I was right. very upset. And so I went back in, I went up to the front desk and I just said, 
I changed my mind. I would like to leave. And they said, okay. They weren't like, wahaha, we're keeping your money. They they charged for the ultrasound that they did. And then they refunded me the full rest, you know, in cash. And then I left. Um, that's it. Did they do any follow-up with you? Did anyone no. from the clinic call to see if you changed your mind? Okay. No, no. I never heard from them again. And um, ironically, in between all of what I just described, at one point when I was sitting in the waiting room, with these other women and I was, you know, I was tearful. One of the other women asked me if I was okay. And I thought that was very poignant because first of all, none of the medical staff did, you Mm -hmm. know, but she did. And what I wanted to say was, I'm going to be fine. Are you going to be okay? But of course I can't say that. And she, the woman who asked me did seem like she emotionally was okay. She was Mm -hmm. very calm. She was not, there were other people there that were crying. There were other people there that looked like they did not feel well. You know, the medications can have side effects. There was one woman there that was on her last day of the procedure, which means you're done with dilation. You have to take some meds and wait for them to kick in before you do the extraction. And she didn't, she seemed like she did not feel well. She, she mentioned to the staff that she didn't feel well. And they, and they said, you know, basically hang in there. We're going to be able to get to you soon. And she called, you know, whoever her partner was, I I don't know, but she asked him if he could come to the clinic so she could just lay down in his car while she was waiting. And he said, no. And I just, Mm -hmm. that's heart, that's heartbreaking to to hear those stories. And, you know, you just wish you could um, in some way, let these women know that there's so much assistance and support available to them, but, but they're in nice, many night times they're in isolation, right? Um, and they're kept that way, I think, in, in my experience, they're kept that way intentionally. So I know. So I'm I'm friends with people, you know, who who do rescue and they've told me stories of situations where they go in and someone says, I literally cannot pay my rent. And they say, we'll help you pay your rent if you want to leave. And then she leaves. Mm. That's all the That's difference wonderful. between between this completely life changing situation. Even if you don't care about the embryo, the fetus, the baby at all. And here I'm yes. talking to, you know, some subsets of pro-choice people. Even if you don't care about that at all, you should care why these women are there. Mm-hmm. Because if they're there, something is wrong. And maybe it's a fatal anomaly. Maybe it's something you can't do anything about. But a lot of times it's something you could do something about. That's really the, you know, most heartbreaking, I think, aspect of this is that it's, it's all avoidable. To yeah, a certain degree, I know, you know? I, I know. It's also unnecessary. Well, thank you for doing it. As difficult as that was, um, and as difficult as what David Delayden did when he went into, you know, abortion clinics for, uh, and, and attempted to buy uh, fetal body parts, I, the, the two of you have contributed so much to the national conversation about what this really looks like from the inside. Well, thank you for saying that. I don't feel like I deserve to be compared to Delighton. <laughs> well, but I appreciate what you're saying. You know, it's two different things, but sure, I, sure. again, each of you exhibited courage. I think well, that was, you, that. Um, you know, exemplary. Um, so I, I want to uh, switch now to talk a little bit about your personal story. So you are uh, a kind of a scientist by training. You have an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's degree in forensic science with an emphasis on DNA analysis, which is fascinating. And you've mentioned you have a sister who's a doctor and a sister who's a nurse. Yes. I think. So, and my mom is also a nurse. And so is my Oh, husband. interesting. So, you know, um, medical sciences seem to be yeah. a family uh, trait. family for sure. Um, so, you know, on this podcast, I uh, have interviewed converts before, but in every case, they have been people who were 
either atheist or agnostic or some other, you know, denomination other than Catholic and then became Catholic. Sure. You were the very first person I've ever interviewed who was Catholic and became an atheist. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your life and what that journey looked like for you? Sure. So I was raised Catholic. I was, I think, fairly devout as a child um, and early teen. And in high school, I started to have some pretty significant doubts, both I would say I would say my doubts were emotional first and intellectual after but I started to have doubts and it's interesting I've I've talked to a lot of I've talked to a lot of atheist agnostic and non-religious people who used to be religious and I've I've noticed several different flavors of them there are people who had very bad experiences with religion sometimes even abusive, sometimes even traumatic. And for them, mm-hmm. deconversion was joy, freedom. And and these often are the kinds of secular people who are trying to liberate other religious people. Uh, it's important to recognize that they, they feel that religion harmed them and they feel that their deconversion helped them and they think that they're helping other people. Um, and they may be or may not be, in my opinion, depending on the specific circumstance. But so there's those kinds of secular people uh, they're more likely to be anti-religious as opposed to just not religious. And there's also people where it was not a particularly emotional thing. They might not have been, they might not have been that into it to begin with. And, mm-hmm. and then when they moved on to them, it was just like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really think this makes sense. And they just kind of move on. It might not be this soul searching thing. Right. So um, more of a gradual process yeah. sort of thing. And, and there are other kinds too. I'm not saying those are the only kinds. Those are people I've talked to, but there are also people and this is the category I'm in, where they did not have a bad experience with religion. I feel that my experiences with religion were oh, overall, overall very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I My faith was important to me. But the kinds of doubts that I had, I, I say that I left faith kicking and screaming. And it took probably like 10 years. So I went from Catholic to just vaguely Protestant to spiritual but not religious that part was pretty brief honestly and then i i hid in agnosticism for a long time um i think i could feel myself rolling down the hill i could feel the inertia that i was i was heading toward atheism you know but for a long time i just wasn't emotionally prepared to go there and so i i emotionally i felt as if i was agnostic now i want to pause here and say there's always people who say well Technically, you're an agnostic atheist, and technically Christians are agnostic Christians because agnostic to Gnostic is a different spectrum than, you know, whatever. I understand that, okay? I'm using it in the colloquial sense. Most people, when they hear agnostic, they hear, like, kind of neutral, kind of like, I don't know, I don't know, kind of thing. And when they hear atheist, they hear more of an affirmative, this is not true. So I'm not – you could technically say that a lot of Christians and a lot of atheists are technically agnostics in the sense that they don't presume to have full, perfect knowledge. I just think that's a useless definition of agnosticism for the purposes of the conversation. When I say I'm an atheist, I don't mean I'm 100% absolutely sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't think most Christians feel that way either. But Mm -hmm. I don't – I don't believe. I'm not just unsure. I, I don't believe it's true. And okay. so I went, so I went from Catholic to Protestant to spiritual to agnostic and I held agnostic I, for several years, I think, until I felt like I had adapted to the actual reality, which is atheism. And I've been an atheist for, you know, I don't know, years now. 
Are other members of your family, your immediate family, your biological family, atheist, or are they still practicing the Catholic faith? Um, my mother is still a practicing Catholic. And my siblings, I'm one of five, are all atheists or agnostics. And my, mm. I would say my dad is an agnostic most of the time. Kind of depends on what day you ask him. But, right. Interesting. Um, yeah. My, my poor mom. She's a great mom. And I think she did a great job raising us in Catholicism. I do not feel that my deconversion is a reflection of any failing on her part at all. Um, for better and worse, depending on how you look at it, I uh, there's a correlation, I think, between certain kinds of personalities and just being very skeptical, you know? Well, so you're you're now the director of an organization called Secular Pro-Life, and the pro-life movement is not um, inherently religious. It is a movement based in human rights and science um, in, the, in the same way that the civil rights movement was not an inherently religious movement because it was based in human dignity and human rights. Um, but both movements are very much saturated with people uh, who have a very important uh, you know, strong faith life. Um, yeah, uh, and, and that can run across the spectrum from, you know, evangelical Christians to Catholics, to Orthodox Jews, um, to Greek Orthodox. Mormons are very pro-life. Mormons are super pro-life. Mormons. Yes. Um, so what has your experience been as uh, a person who is an atheist working in a movement that, you know, is, um, has a large component of religious people. Do you feel welcome? Has it been awkward for you? Um, do you feel like people take you seriously? What What's just the overall experience been? There's a tension. It's definitely a tension. Um, mostly it's good. I think that secular pro-life, we naturally, the kinds of Christians and the kinds of people of faith who want to work with us are naturally going to be the kinds of people who are looking for either secular arguments or more diversity in the movement or the kinds of, we have a lot of followers and also volunteers and donors who are peoples of a variety of faiths. I want to make that clear. Our, mm -hmm. our board president and vice president and myself are all atheists, but okay. you do not have to be atheist or agnostic to participate. We have atheist and agnostic volunteers and donors, but we don't really care what your religion right. is. We're, okay. We want to build interfaith coalitions of people interested in helping us advance secular arguments against abortion and make more space in the pro-life movement for what I call the non-traditional pro-lifers to do that work. So okay. we do work with a lot of people of faith, including a lot of Christians. But the kinds of Christians who want to work with us are a subset that, that see our vision, see what we're trying to do and are happy to participate. And so for us, we sort of created this environment that it, that works very well. People are generally really supportive. People generally want to work together. It's when I, it's when I go to pro-life events, conferences, marches, talks, and I step outside of the little secular pro-life bubble we've created. That's where there is tension sometimes. Um, hmm. most very rarely is anybody overtly rude It's very rare. It's, it has happened, but, uh, mostly it's just confusion. <laughs> and yeah. also in my opinion, the pro-life movement, obviously I'm speaking in generalizations, the pro-life movement likes to think of itself as a human rights movement first. And, a, and if, a, if a Christian movement at all second, but it is so saturated with Christians that, it's very difficult for them to see when they are when they are structuring their events and their stuff just for Christians only. I don't right. think most people do it on purpose, 
But often all it takes is me showing up and saying, hey, I'm an atheist. And they'll start to think about it maybe for the first time. You know, right. Anybody of any demographic, if you are used to hanging out with your demographic, and for the most part, that's who you're talking to, it's extremely difficult for human beings to, of their own accord, think about what the perspective is for anybody else. That's We all do that. Everybody does that. Um, but it's tricky in the pro-life movement because I really do want to make more space for, yes, secular pro-life people, but also just anybody who is not particularly conservative and Christian. Like you could have people who are nominally Christian who still feel put off by certain things. You could, of course, have people who are more liberal. You could have all these things. I want everyone to fight abortion. I want everybody to do it. And the more that I can make them feel welcome to do it, the better. Okay, well, let's talk about that because, you know, your organization states you don't have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the debate. You don't even have to argue about it. Just identify yourself, stand up. And so you have those, um, your three points, identifying yourself as pro-life to destroy stereotypes, identify as pro-life, which creates what you call strategic tension. Yes. Um, And then identifying yourself as pro-life creates opportunities. So unpack that for us, because that's a really fascinating approach. And it's very different from any of the other, you know, more prominent pro-life groups, what their mission is and their mission statements. This is unique. So we, Secular Pro-Life works with a lot of the non-traditional pro-lifers, secular people, yes, but also sometimes devout Christians who are Democrats or just other ways in which they feel mistimed or not necessarily connecting to the overarching pro-life movement. And what I have found is that when you have a pro-life person who is part of a demographic that is traditionally very pro-choice, like a Democrat or an atheist or whatever, they are way more likely to be demure about it. We have a lot of volunteers who volunteer with us to do things on the back end because it gives them a way to help without having to tell anyone in their life that they're pro-life. You know, we've got um, coastal urbanite kinds of people where even their spouses don't know they're pro-life. So we're working Hmm. with groups. I think we even say on the homepage, you go to secularprolife.org and the homepage caption mentions closeted pro-lifers. If you're a closeted pro-lifer, we welcome you here. We understand, you know? Um, We're working with pro-lifers that I think are more likely to be in social circles that are overwhelmingly pro-choice. Now, I want to be clear even if you are in a social circle that's that's very pro-life for the most part, or, or forget pro-life, say you're in a social circle that's very conservative and Christian, like the traditional you know, idea, right. it's right. still important for you to tell people you're pro-life. Not all conservatives mm-hmm. are pro-life. Not all Christians are pro-life. We want to make sure people know that we are around. But it's especially important for anyone who exists in a demographic that is mostly pro-choice because I say this from copious experience. I was an atheist in California, in higher education in California. And for many, many years, as far as I knew, the only person I knew in real life, not on the internet, that was also pro-life was my boyfriend. You know, my coworkers, my classmates, my friends, they're all either pro-choice or they just have not talked about it and they're ambivalent, which is pro-choice, but in a lighter way. And Mm -hmm. so- Sometimes I would be the only person in their entire life that, as far as they knew, opposed abortion. It's important to speak up for several reasons. The first one is 
Now, when they hear about so-called anti-choicers and whatever stereotypes they hear, they have me in their head as a juxtaposition. So if they hear someone talking about these religious zealots trying to force their religion on us, they have me in their head and they, th- they, they might even think, oh, that's probably most pro-lifers, but not Monica, though. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so it's destroying stereotypes in, in two ways. First of all, there's if you are a non-traditional pro-life person and they know you, then they know, hey, this friend I have who's a Democrat, this friend I have who's a vegan, this friend I have who's queer, this friend I have who's secular, they're against abortion. So clearly it's not always religiously motivated. Yeah. But right. I want to point out, too, even if you are really conservative and Christian, you could still destroy stereotypes telling people you're pro-life because not all the stereotypes are about identity politics. Some of the stereotypes are about, oh, you hate sex. You hate women. You hate freedom. You want to, you know, subjugate women so that you can feel superior. Whatever, whatever the dumb thing is, if they know you, even if you're a super conservative Christian, if they know you as their friend who they recognize as a full human being in all of the complexity that comes with friendship, it makes it so much harder for them to believe this bumper sticker nonsense because you're in their head and they think, you know what? I, don't, I feel like Mary doesn't really like hate sex. That seems improbable. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. dumb. I had this experience too, very early on, very early on in my adulthood when I was getting involved in the abortion debate, I was friends with this pro-choice atheist guy. And as we got to know each other outside of the debate, not just about abortion, he came to see me as pretty ferocious about Mm -hmm. things to do with gender, things to do with defending women. And it came to sound ridiculous to him in his own mind when people said, oh, pro-lifers just hate women because he would think of me and he would think, she absolutely no. doesn't. She absolutely doesn't. You guys, you guys are starting to embarrass me. I'm starting to see how much this is not what's happening. And it was just one person, one friendship. So it destroys stereotypes via identity politics if you're a non-traditional pro-lifer, and and just via partisan nonsense politics if you're just if you're just a regular person. Now right. I will say, if you do hate women and sex and freedom, don't tell people you're pro-life. I don't I don't want you talking right. about it. But that's not that's like not a real thing. And so yes. The second thing is strategic tension. This is also especially true for the non-traditional pro-lifers, the people that are in pro-choice demographics. We've all had this experience where somebody in our lives, in our classroom or in our lunchroom at work or wherever they are, they they just assume that everyone around them is pro-choice because all good regular people are pro-choice because they don't know any pro-lifers. And so they start mouthing off about abortion and talking about how they can't believe pro-anti-choicers think this or anti-choicers think that. And they're saying that because they assume that everyone in the room agrees with them. I want them to have a little more humility. I want them to have a little bit more pause. And so if someone is mouthing off about the abortion issue, I can't believe they're taking away women's rights, all these things. And all you say is, hey, hey, I don't want to argue about this. I just want to let you know I don't agree with the way you're describing this. Hmm. That's all you have to say. And a lot of people, that'll be enough to make them feel very uncomfortable and yeah, that's very neutralizing. Sort yes. Of and, and they might, yeah. some of them might get aggressive and they might say, well, why would you say that? Are you saying this? Are you saying that? You can engage if you want to, but you can also just say, ah, hey, I am not comfortable arguing about this. You are the one who brought it up in mixed company. And I just want to let you know that the company is mixed. This is the mixed company. Okay. If you don't care, you don't care. But I figured, you know, informed consent, right? You should know. And so you're creating that tension. There's a huge asymmetry in the country where major cultural institutions reflect pro-choice thought and have no comprehension of pro-life thought. And pro-choicers in some ways are in an echo chamber where they just see their ideas reflected back to them and they can't imagine why anyone would hate women so much because they're in an echo chamber and they have no idea what we're saying. Mm-hmm. You are 
in a predominantly pro-choice social circle, you are an ambassador and you have the position to say, hey, what you're describing is not accurate. You don't know what's going on. We could talk about it more if you want, maybe, if I want and you want, maybe. But right. just so you know, just stop. All right. And I've done that in California multiple times. You know, then the last thing is it creates opportunities. This is if you are willing to talk about it. If you are willing to talk about it under the right circumstances, never feel bullied into it. But especially one on one with someone you're friends with, if they know you're against abortion and they want to have the opportunity to have a useful conversation with a real actual person and not just yelling at trolls on Instagram or whatever, they might come to you at some point and say, hey, you know, I know we disagree on this, but I'm just curious, why does your side do this, that, or the other thing? Why is this happening? And it might be a very loaded question, even if they don't mean it to be, but recognize they're showing some curiosity, genuine curiosity. They want to better understand. I had this happen to me also. So in one case, a friend of mine who I've been friends with for multiple years, and she had never brought it up. And I don't force the conversation. I want people to consent to the conversation. She had right. never brought it up. She's hanging out with me one day and she says, can I ask you a question about like, you know, I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. you don't have to whisper. I, I'm good. Whatever, yeah. you, whatever you want. And she, I think she asked me about overpopulation, but to her, that was something that she was really confused about that she wanted to talk about. And she didn't know anyone else that she could just ask them as a friend, but she, right. but she knew she could ask me because she knew I was against abortion. If I had hid the fact that I was against abortion, she'd have nobody to ask. That's how you begin right. to have these conversations. So right. Again, especially for the people in predominantly pro-choice areas and social circles. And you got to do what you feel comfortable with. You got to do what you think, especially if you're talking about a professional environment, you be cautious if you need to be cautious. But but you are in a very unique position where you can bust stereotypes just by existing. And you can push back a little bit on the asymmetry of them being very comfortable with their worldview reflected back to them all the time. And if you're comfortable with it, you can talk about it. And so we we have, I think, in the we have a brochure on this. We have a blog post on this. And every time we mention, if you do want to debate it, if you want to actually get into debates, you go to secularprolife.org slash index. And we have dozens of pro-choice talking points with our content responding. Now, that's just the content. There's also strategy. Uh, it's very useful to take things slow. You talk about abortion a little bit. Talk about all the other things in your friendship. Let there be lots of space between conversations. There's a bunch of tips about how to do it if you are going to start engaging right. in your interpersonal relationships. But you can't do any of it until they know that you're pro-life. Right. Until you identify as, as a pro-life person. Mm -hmm. So just quickly, what, what are the three best arguments? And I know your website is just a treasure trove of facts and information all of it based in science and in reason. So it's, um, I recommend it listeners, if you need to learn some of the scientific and human rights arguments on abortion, but what are the three best arguments that you make as a non, as an atheist uh, for the pro-life cause? What would your top three be? Mm. There's what I think is most convincing. And then there's what appears to actually be convincing to other people and they're not the same. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's, let's start with yours. So for me, you start with the biology. I am unequivocal that the biology does matter. You can't do it alone with biology. You need philosophy. But we talk to people all the time who don't understand what an organism is. That's where you get people saying, oh, if you think abortion is murder, then you must think masturbation is genocide. And you're like, no, dude, that's just you not knowing what an organism <laughs> is. You know, and there's a confusion there. So you start with the biology and you start with, you know, the beginning of an individual human organism's life cycle is the zygote. This is not a point of confusion in biology. There's more to it. You have to talk about philosophy too. But first we need to, if we're going to debate which human organisms are valuable people, we have to first know what a human organism is. So I always start with that. A lot of people will just concede it immediately. There's a lot of pro-choice people that don't have a problem with that. And then they'll say, 
well, it might be a human, but it's not a human being or it's not a person or it's not like philosophically a valuable entity. And then you have to get into the personhood debates. I, I think the most common now personhood debate is always about cognition. It's always about consciousness or sentience or sapience. And sometimes the people using those words aren't sure exactly precisely what they mean, but you get their gist. They basically are saying, you know, a blastocyst doesn't have a brain and a newborn does. At some point between these two things, you develop the things that from a secular perspective we care about in humanity, which is our advanced cognitive abilities um, uh, that gives us like our consciousness and our personhood. That's a very common position. I, I can't in 30 seconds explain why we don't find that convincing we have blog posts on it but the 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 brief version is that they think it it sounds reasonable like cursory glance if you're taking souls out of it if you're taking religion out of it and you're just like why do we care about human beings it's because we're super smart so when that happens that's when we care it sounds reasonable like cursory glance but when you drill down into it they don't know what they mean basically because a one day old newborn human being has far less cognitive abilities than, for example, any elephant, right? Or or even right. like an adult dog. And yet we all instinctively recognize that we, well, not all of us, but most of us value the one-day-old human more than the adult dog. Why? Why? And usually the answer comes down to recognizing our abilities over an entire lifetime and not in a single moment. And as soon as you start talking about future cognitive abilities, you are making a pro-life argument because, because the embryo has those future cognitive abilities too. Some people will say, oh, you know, if you unplug a coma patient, that's not murder because the consciousness isn't there anymore. And I'm like, that's not the analogy. The analogy is if you have a coma patient who is going to wake up in a couple of months mm-hmm. and you have good reason to believe they're going to wake up in a couple of months and have the cognition you're talking about. It's not right now, but it's in the future. That's the analogy. If you unplug a coma patient who was going to wake up in a couple of months and, you know, get out of bed and have a life. Right. That murder. That's the analogy. So it basically pivots on future versus present cognitive abilities. And then the other thing that pro-lifers need to be able to understand and address is bodily rights. This is extremely important. And I find- So autonomy and uh, forced birth. if 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 you remember nothing else about bodily rights- Remember that most pro-choice people who are talking about bodily rights, they're not saying I can do literally whatever I want with my body at any time. And they're not saying the fetus is, you know, one of my extra limbs. That's not what most of them are saying. Some of them are saying that, but most of them, what they're saying is no one has the right to use my body against my will. That Mm -hmm. is what they're saying. That is what we have to address. Now, you can address it in a bunch of different ways. You could say, was it really against your will if you took these risks? You can talk about that. You can say, well, there's there's a unique situation in pregnancy, just like you had the right to not be killed when you were in that vulnerable position. So should all human beings. You know, you can get into analogies about bodily rights where people talk about like kidney donations or car crashes and then talk about the ways in which those are not at all analogous to abortion. You could do all of those things. But before you do any of those things, please, please recognize that most of them are not saying I can do literally whatever I want with my body. And most of them are not saying I don't recognize the fetus as a separate entity. Most of them are saying the fetus is in my body and using my body. And whether they're a person or not, no person can use your body against your will. That is what we need to That's respond argument, to. Right? Yeah. And, and in general, I find pro-life people often end up responding to one of the weaker versions. Like, oh, you think you can do whatever you want with your body. Oh, you think that if you're pregnant with a boy, you know, that you have a penis. Like, that. that's dumb. Guys, that's not what they mean. Okay? 
Um, so we need to respond to their strongest arguments and their stronger argument is the right to refuse. So I right. think that's really important right. too. I don't think right. it justifies the vast, vast majority of abortions. I think you get into corner cases where it starts to get complicated, but if we're just talking about the typical abortion, which is aborting a healthy fetus carried by a healthy woman conceived in consensual sex, which is 95% plus of abortions, I don't think bodily rights justifies it at all. I don't think it's even right. close. But um, but we do need to be able to reckon with it. So if you want to see more about that without me going on and on about it, again, secularprolife.org slash index. There's literally a whole section called bodily rights. And secularprolife.org, listeners, is the website for Secular Pro-Life. Uh, just as we wrap up here, Monica, you, one of the other great contributions, in addition to your undercover work, um, is your analysis of the Turnaway Study. Um, the Turnaway Study is so often cited by abortion advocates as a reason why women have to have abortions the second they decide that they want or need one. Sure. Um, can you just very quickly you know, explain how uh, abortion advocates use this study um, by ignoring the, the findings that are actually um, very surprising in the, in the study? Yes. So the Turnaway Study, if you don't already know, they essentially followed women women who physically came to abortion clinics to get abortions, and some of them got abortions, and some of them were turned away, hence the name of the study. Uh, they were turned away because they were past the gestational limit for the clinic that they were at. And so the Turnaway Study followed these two groups, women who aborted and women who were turned away from abortion over the course of approximately five years and measured a bunch of different outcomes for them. Now, I should pause and say that there are a lot of pro-life individuals and organizations that believe that the study's methodology is problematic. And you can look that up and read about that in other places. I don't take that focus because I think even if you assume that the study was perfectly flawless, it's it's not it's not producing the results that people suggest. So essentially there are certain findings from the turnaway study that have gotten copious media coverage. In fact, um, the group that put it together, answer and a-N-S-I-R-H. I, I can't remember now. It's something about assisting with reproductive health. I, I should know it. I forget. But the group that put it together, they have a website for the Turnaway Study. And p- somewhere on the website, they they even catalog all of the different news articles covering elements of the Turnaway Study. And it's hundreds and hundreds of news articles. Uh, mm-hmm. The lead researcher just recently got an $800,000 genius grant for putting it together. It's got tons right. of accolades. It's a huge thing. Uh, and if you look at their website when they describe and summarize the results... There's some results they talk about and some that they don't. And the most the most probably famous finding from the Turnaway study was that women who aborted five years later did not regret it and said it was the right decision for them. There's tons mm-hmm. of coverage of this finding. Other findings include, and this has gotten especially important post-Dobbs, that women who could not get abortions had worse financial outcomes and other metrics than women who got abortions. So the Turnaway study found all those things and they cite these things to say, you know, Abortion didn't hurt them. Denying them abortion hurt them. And this is the scientific research evidence base. They use certain recurring phrases about their clinical experience and professionalism and expertise and objectivity to suggest like, this is just the research. This is what it shows. If you want to be evidence-based, you should know that abortion doesn't hurt them and denying abortion does. The Mm. end. But if you read the Turnaway study, and calling it a study is a little bit of a misnomer because they've taken the data from it to publish multiple different peer-reviewed publications in different journals, taking, you know, focusing on different aspects. Right. If you read these things, there's other, there's other findings too. I think the most, the most damning one is they found that women who were denied abortions and gave birth, 96% of them said they no longer wish they'd aborted. And they, they even viewed, they retroactively viewed their abortion denial in a positive light 
because of bonding to their children. Right. So they loved their children. Mm -hmm. They'd connected with their children and they were, they actually expressed happiness that they didn't get that abortion they were seeking. So if you read the paper that talks about this, they quote some of them and there was one, I won't get the quote verbatim right, but she talks about how she gets so sad when she thinks about the fact that she even considered it because she loves her son so much. So they quote this. And it's important to note too, I tell people this and they say, well, yeah, of course, once you've birthed the baby and you can hold them and you're like developing a relationship with them and your hormones have changed and all these things have changed, of course, you're going to say that. But the thing is, most of the emotional shift happened before they gave birth. Hmm. So one week after being denied an abortion, a third of them already said they no longer wish they'd aborted, which to me, that stat is almost more remarkable. Just one week later, there's still, whatever's going on in their life is still going on in their life. They're still about the same level of pregnancy they were you know, and they already say, I no longer wished I'd aborted. I feel like that is telling all by itself. That could be like a whole separate research paper. Well, right. Sometimes they feel the universe or God or whatever you want to call it intervened. Or they didn't necessarily really want to do it per se in the exactly. first Exactly. Which and goes back to that whole coercion yes, issue. I think we greatly underestimate this. So yes. So one week after it was 35% so they no longer wish they'd aborted. And by the time of the birth, I want to say it was something like 80%. And the reason I bring this up is because that's most of the change there. It continued to change after birth all the way up until five years out when it was 96%. So it still continued to increase after birth, but most of the change happened before the baby was born. So anyway, that's the biggest thing. I was I was actually a little bit shocked when I finally found this finding because when they talked about all the women who didn't regret aborting, I was wondering why they didn't ask all the women who were turned away the same questions. Because you know, in a scientific mm-hmm. study, you have your control group and your test group. In this case, the control group is the women who were turned away compared to the women who got abortions. If you're asking the women who got abortions about their emotional reactions, you should be asking the control group the same thing. But at the time that I was looking at this, that wasn't, they, I just assumed they didn't ask them. I just assumed they had not asked them how they felt. And then later they published the paper about the women who were turned away. And it turns out that the overwhelming majority of them said they no longer wish they'd aborted. You can't, this is not spoken of. It's it's rarely ever even hinted at in media coverage. If you go to Answer's website about the turnaway study, they have a fact sheet summarizing abortion denial. They don't mention it. They have the website summarizing all the publications of the turnaway study. It's listed there. You can find the name of the publication, but all their paragraphs describing the publications don't mention it. They don't talk about it. Uh, so that's the biggest one. But additionally, other things to beware of, in terms of the finances, it is true that the Turnaway study found that when women were denied abortion, they had worse financial outcomes initially. But the long mm-hmm. and short of it is, by the end of the study period, most of their metrics resolved, which means that the, for example, household income, personal income, level of full-time employment, all of these kinds of metrics, by the end of the study pyramid, they were, period, they were not different between the women who aborted and the women who were denied abortion. And importantly, they also found that by the end of the study period, their ratings of their life satisfaction weren't different between the women who aborted and the women who were denied abortion. So this narrative of abortion denial causing this permanent damage is at best hyperbolically exaggerated. And at worst, it's kind of a lie because the women who had worse financial outcomes, you know, had lower credit scores, were more likely to have problems with debt, all these things. They knew all of that about their lives when they told you they no longer wish they'd aborted. They knew that. As a woman who has had children in very low-income situations, who has been on state assistance, who has done all these things, I get pretty riled up when I talk about this because what I hear is a woman who was poor and stressed 
ended up having a harder time financially, but overall was still glad she didn't get an abortion because she loves her child. Right. Yeah. Poor people love their children too. Yeah. And she tells you this. She says, you know what? I'm glad I didn't get an abortion. I love my child. And then the researchers basically say, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, did you know your credit score is lower? Did you know you're living with your parents? Yeah, man, I did know that. Thank you. I said mm-hmm. what I said. Okay. Right. I don't need you to tell me that my financial outcomes are more important than my relationship with my daughter. Thank you. Yes. That's how I feel when I hear it. But anyway. Right. No, it's it's very insulting to people who are poor as if that somehow, you know, makes them, uh, you know, love their children less or what have you. And when you look at how like classist it is and often Super racist. classist. Yeah. If we were being remotely objective about the Turnaway study, we would say that it leads us to believe that women who got abortions ultimately said that that was the right decision and women who didn't ultimately said that it was the right decision. And in many cases, if you offered them more financial assistance or other support, they might have preferred that route. And and right. I think that I think there's a lesson to be learned here for pro-life people too. The Turnaway study found that 96% of women said they no longer wish they'd aborted. That means 4% said yes or I don't know. And so what about those 4%? Last thing I want you to remember is the women who placed for adoption were dramatically more likely to say they still wish they'd aborted. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. adoption is never the answer. I think sometimes it is. I think it can be a very giving, beautiful thing. But I also think the pro-life movement has historically been a a little casual about it. I think most women want the resources to parent and take care of their own children. And that's where the focus should mostly be. That's what I think. We will leave things there. Monica Snyder, Executive Director of Secular Pro-Life, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.